Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is the conclusion of the chat that I had with Jason Plum of Regina Saskatchewan's The Waltons. So touring Coxcrow, what was the kind of approach now that, you know, you've had a successful first record, you've won a Juno, you now have a major producer behind your second record. Um, what is now the plan? Is the plan take it to the next level from Tractor or? Well, I mean, the goal was to uh, sell as many records as the first one, I guess, on their end. And mm-hmm. for us, it was just to keep to keep touring and uh, and and hopefully expand our our, our audience and um, you know get into the states, to try to spend more time in the UK. You know, I, I'm trying to think of a time like, God, I'm getting old. Like this is this is getting to be a long time ago now, uh, as to where we as, as to when we uh, managed to get our our U.S. and uh, and European um, signings. And I can't remember if that happened just before Coxcrow or at the end of like my tractor or when that happened. But we we did start touring a lot more in the U.K. A lot more, uh, like months we'd spend over there, and uh, and and in the U.S. But things weren't. I mean, we would we would do really well at a show in uh, you know in Mobile, Alabama. We I remember we did a tour with uh, the Bodines. We did a big Southern tour with them, and their audience went nuts for us. You know, but it was always the follow up that we couldn't we couldn't uh, orchestrate. You know, it's great to play a show, but if you don't if you don't go back again and right. uh, keep the ball keep the ball moving, it's gonna just die on the vine. And I think that happened to us everywhere we went in the states. We toured with the with the Bare Nakeds as well uh, down there a lot, and uh, we were getting encores as an opening act with those guys. Huh. And uh, you know, we just needed to go back and play smaller shows in those same markets, like they should have been booked. So I think that if we had committed to staying in the states, um, you know, we'd be having a different conversation right now, possibly. But uh, I don't know. I guess the just the uh, funding wasn't there. And there were some management decisions that you know we found questionable at the time as far as tour spots. I remember leaving a tour. We finished a tour with uh, Bare Nakeds. I think in Seattle was our last date, and then we were starting another tour like four days later in Boston, uh, opening for Shane McGowan and the Popes of all huh. acts for us to be on a bill with. So we I remember deadheading across to get to Boston to to huh. start the tour with this with this guy. And uh, it was a disaster, like hand down the worst bill in history. Um, <laughs> and the audience is the audience is singing soccer songs louder than us when we're playing. Oh, wow. I mean, it was just it was a it was a bad call. It was a bad call. And we I think we only lasted about six or seven shows on the tour. And uh, it was the first tour we'd ever sort of got ourselves fired from just because it was just we coming from the best tour we had done with Bare Nakeds to the worst. It was a big shift. And, uh, so that, that was tough. Um, and that was getting to be, I don't think sales were going too well. Like there's a couple singles that were doing okay. Like Wascana wasn't a, a, a radio burner. Um, what else? Oh, end of the world was the first single and it was doing really well in Quebec. So it must've had some of the Quebec law sound to it, but yeah, I, you know, it basically the record wasn't doing as well as everybody had hoped. Um, and we felt it even in touring in Canada that, um, you know, and I, uh, with colleges that I think the, 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 the people that were there 
uh, watching us and Skydiggers and, and Tips 440 had kind of, I don't know, they graduated or something. <laughs> and they, <laughs> you know, they, the, the audiences were noticeably smaller. Like even our very first date, uh, with our very first show with Sean, our new drummer drive, I think it started, it was in, it was in PEI. And we got there, and, and I mean, there was a pretty big storm. It was wasn't great weather, but it was like maybe half full, and it's like, oh, what's what's going on here? And then we noticed it sort of happening everywhere, and it's like, yeah, people have lost interest. Um, so I think it was at that point that we that we pushed to try and stay out of the country a little bit more. And we were lucky; we got we got hooked up with um, with Seymour Stein from Sire Records, uh, and he he was a fan, and. Uh, you know, we were getting some support in the U.S., like you know, touring with the Bodines and um, and Bare Nakeds, who were on Sire, um, helped out. And then a tour in the U.K. with this TV star it was a crazy tour. His name was Jimmy Nail, um, and uh, he had had a show called Spender, I think. Spender, yeah, it was a TV star. Anyways, he was selling out arenas. Like we played, you oh, know, wow. hockey hockey rinks in the U.K. with huh. this guy, um, and. Uh, Again, it was more just the follow-up. Like if we'd gone back to Manchester to play a month later, people would have come out, but we just never did. We just, you know, it was uh, it was bad strategy. And I look at uh, you know artists that I've worked with and friends of mine these days that are doing it smart. I'm thinking most notably about uh, Dead South and how they've they're not getting any airplay, but they are a great live band and they've built everything they have. Not everything because the YouTube video helped a lot, obviously, but um, relentlessly touring and returning like 10 trips to Germany, you know, just keep it wow. going, keep it going. You know, you've got to, you've got to follow up. People forget. So I, I think that was an error on our part. Actually, just a random thought I had um, on some records, it's the Waltons and on some records, it's Waltons. Why the switch between the two and uh, which way do you prefer? You know, I don't know. That's confusing and stupid. Even when you search it online, what comes up? Um, I don't know. I think it had, uh, I, and actually I ran into the same thing with my solo projects, Jason Plum and The Willing, Jason Plum ampersand The Willing. You can't right. find some music uh, be, between each of those. But um, I don't know. I, I, I vaguely remember some rumblings about the TV show and not that they were going to sue us or anything like that, or, you know, but, I don't know why we dropped the Waltons and became Waltons. I guess to us, it didn't seem like that big of a difference at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at this Cox Crow artwork, it might have even been as simple as the that didn't fit on the cover. I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not too sure. It wasn't a conscious um, thing, kind of like becoming like the new Waltons or, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It was just... I don't know. We didn't think much about it. Maybe a couple other bands, uh, like the Skydiggers, was it Skydiggers? Skydiggers, right. you know, or or the or, or the Skydiggers. It didn't really seem to make that big difference for us. So going into the third record now, you, like you mentioned, Cox Crow being a bit of a letdown in terms of sales and and it wasn't. And you know what? And by the way, sorry, it wasn't terrible. No, like I think it was. I think it was. I don't know what. Like my tractor had had topped off on it. Like. 70,000 maybe or 60,000 like it was certified gold for sure but I think uh I think Cox Crow was like you know like 30 30,000 copies so you know it just mm-hmm. wasn't it should have been 100 if it had been 100 right, right. then you know our trajectory would have been completely different but yeah, so it wasn't like it sold nothing it just 
didn't surpass the first one. So um, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, that's fine. No, no. And totally, totally understandable. I should say not meeting expectations, doing well, but not meeting expectations is a better way to phrase it. Um, yeah. Do you then have more pressure going into a third record? I mean, what are the conversations with, with management and record labels saying, you know, write this kind of song, work with this writer, work with this producer? Are, are those things now popping up in a way they weren't previously? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think Warner's did spend a fair bit of money on the second record. You know, they they, they well, just one video alone was 100 grand. And I think we did three videos two 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 videos for sure for that record so you know they're 200 grand in the hole plus the hundred thousand we would have spent recording so and touring so they're you know for sure they're half million dollars in the hole on us on that record uh, as a gamble so they need certain amounts to recoup but if it doesn't get over that threshold there it's a loss for them and we were signed to um a five record deal three of them firm and two options so yes, we were heading into our third record, which they had to pay for because it was part of the contract. And uh, the discussions about producers uh, were long and and uh, expensive and exhausting. Um, and and the the writing of the record was it was tough. It was tough because they wanted to hear demos. They wanted to hear a single before they would green light you know, the, the production is like, and that's the way it went. And, and, you know, and as it should, I mean, if I'm, if I'm a label and I've got young writers, I want to hear what they're doing before I spend another hundred thousand bucks on studio time. So it, it was, I don't know. I, I remember just being completely exhausting. Like it, it seemed like it took forever to make the third record. And in the meantime, anybody who ever cared about us, you know, had, had kind of forgotten more or less who we were sort of flash in the pan. Oh yeah. Those farm kids from Saskatchewan, like my tractor, cute, cute. Um, so it was tough, but I'm, you know, some great things came out of it. Um, least, uh, not, not least of all would be, uh, my friendship with, with, uh, Craig Northey because, uh, Kim cook, who's one of my favorite people in the whole world was our A&R guy at the time at Warner's had suggested that uh, I go out and write with, uh, with Steven and Craig from the odds. Mm. Um, they, they were having some great success. Um, They're doing really well. I think good word feeling was out. And anyways, they, they were considered to be great pop writers and, as they should have been. Cause they, cause they mm-hmm. absolutely were and are. Um, so went out to Vancouver for a week of writing with Craig and Steven. It was mostly me and Craig in, in fairness, Steven kind of, was an interesting cat <laughs> he was around with um but really got to know craig really well and uh both um saw in each other um something that we that we both had and this is love of pop music and talks a lot about hockey actually probably more about hockey than we should have um <laughs> when we're supposed to be supposed to be writing and uh yeah wrote wrote uh I think two, maybe three songs with those guys. And I think two of them ended up on the record. And uh, who else, what else happened in that? Well, the song Beats a Hell Out of Me, which became the first and maybe Jesus, the only single um, from Empire Hotel. Uh, I think we recorded that for sure three times. Like, wow. um, and uh, I don't know how many songs I sent in as demos. Management had kind of, said yeah you got to keep writing this isn't there yet i had taken a trip to i thought okay i'm going to go find my muse i'm going to get out of the country so i went to new orleans 
uh, and rented this little shotgun shack for, for a few weeks and did a bunch of writing there. Felt afraid for my life because it wasn't <laughs> in a great part of town. Uh, it was in a terrible part of town. I was, the, I was in the ninth ward and I don't know how, how I ended up there, but I did. And so I left and went to Austin, uh, took the train to Austin and continued to write there. And uh, that felt more, you know, more, I was able to, I went and saw Willie Nelson live. So I thought that was cool, cool. but Austin's a fun town. And then, uh, you know, I had a tragedy in my life where a close friend of mine uh, committed suicide during that writing trip and I had to fly home. And uh, dead of winter, flew home, saw my friends and uh, just, I don't know, it was a sort of a turning point for me. And that's uh, when I decided to to take up residence here in, in town. I was living with my parents when I moved home and uh, couldn't write there. So I went and rented a room at the Empire Hotel just to get some privacy and uh huh. sort of spent the rest of the time writing there and uh yeah it was long i think i, I don't know i feel like i wrote 30 songs for that record what was it about the empire hotel i mean of all the hotels to choose in regina oh i knew it would be cheap and i kind of <laughs> knew my dad my my dad knew uh the manager and uh i wasn't allowed to sleep there because then they said they would have had to make up the beds and i was like oh god you don't make up the beds and there was like you know there's only there's a shared bathroom on the floor and um yeah, cold. I just remember being really cold, but you know, I was I was young enough. I wasn't even thirty yet, so I was still just raring to go and uh, to write, anyways. And um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a weird time. It was it was hard just because you know we kind of felt like the record company had had uh, let us down a little bit, um, and you know nobody wants to be told that what they're what they're doing isn't as good as what they used to do um, when. When I thought at the time, I thought it really was. Listening back on it now, I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. There wasn't any hitch over the head, slam dunk singles. But I told myself at the time, I was like, well, so what? If there isn't any singles, you know, some of my favorite Pink Floyd records didn't have singles on them either. And it's like, well, we're not Pink Floyd. So um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't quite get that at the time. Um, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, you know, I'm looking down the song list of that record and, you know, every song was a bit of a struggle. And then... We, we, we decided to make the record with Michael Phillip again because we, we loved what he did um, with us and we got along with him great. And uh, so we started the record with him, got through most of it, and then decided that, you know, some of the songs were too slow. A um, couple we wanted to re-record just in, the, just in this search to get a single, you know, like record company needs to hear a single. I need to hear a single. So we sped up a couple songs, re-sung some stuff. I remember renting some studio time in, in, uh, in well, here in Regina, even at Touchwood to go in and do some, do some tweaks. We worked with uh, Kevin Churko, which was pretty cool. He was a good guy. He, he was still living here at that point. Um, and then up and rented some space, uh, some time up in Saskatoon as well. And um, Keith ended up actually remixing most of the record with the exception of a few songs that were Michael Phillips that we left alone. The opening track being the one, which is probably the favorite song that I've ever done with Michael Phillips is called Bloody Love Note. Um, but very albumy, like it's not, it's not side, it's not track one side A is, is the single, it's a banger. It's like, this is like, this is deep album stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And then Beat the Hell Out of Me is second and uh, made a video for that song here with uh, Chris Zarka's in it, actually. He's one of the security guys. Right. It's a boxing video. Boxing video of me. And, um, yeah, that, uh, 
that be telling me there's a whole story all about that song. Lipsticks out of place from when I kissed your mouth. Your snow white skin is blemished blue around your wrist from when I held your hand. You told me that it would be the last time, but now I'm getting harder to fool. It really beats the hell out of me.
because uh, at a certain point, I don't know if I if I'd reached out to Ed Robertson from BNL or what. Well, I think I did call him. I said, "Look, dude, I don't know what's going on with us. We're having problems with with management, problems with the label. They're not hearing a single blah blah blah." And, he's, and I think he just said, "Well, send me what you're working on." So I sent him a copy of Beats the Hell Out of Me. He said, okay, this is absolutely a hit song. You guys just need to work with the with the right guy to make it a hit. And uh, um, which was funny for him to say because they'd done, I don't know, two two or three projects with Michael Phillip and no slam against him whatsoever, but he wasn't making singles for us. So he actually, Ed, actually called uh, his guy at uh, their label in the States and said, is there anything we can do for the Waltons because this band mm. is my favorite band and Jason's my favorite writer. And without any kind of like injection of hope, they're, they're, they're going to, you know, cease to exist. So he, he, he took it upon himself. And um, as it turned out, um, friends, the TV show was, uh, was doing a soundtrack for their second season, I think, or third season. Um, their first season soundtrack was massive, massive seller. Um, and I, I what, what, do you remember what the what was this what was the big single off of that? The Hootie cover of Fifty Four Forty, I Go Blind, and That's Shoe right. Locks by BNL. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so they said, okay, look at, um, they, and they'd heard they'd heard one of the versions of Beats of Hell. And they said, okay, get some studio time booked in Toronto, but you have to go in and produce it. You, you know what you what what you see in these guys, and so he brought uh, he brought an engineer with them, uh, a guy named uh, David Leonard, um, who'd worked with some pretty heavy folks um and we booked some time in toronto and he came in and recorded this version of beats the hell out of me which we thought was amazing it was great um the record company liked it uh, in the states yeah it's weird we were kind of seems like we were maybe backdooring our canadian company i don't know it's a little foggy to me but anyways the song ended up on the record but they didn't pick it as a single um they picked some semi-sonic song as i recall and it wasn't a very good song and that yeah. record didn't sell any. It didn't sell anything. The the friends again. It was called Friends Again. That's right. Uh, soundtrack. Um, I mean, by not selling anything, it probably still sold, whatever, a hundred thousand units yeah, or something. Yeah. But in the states, in the states, that's not that great. Um, so that was part of the Beats of Hell Out of Me saga, and it was on the record. And, and I think when the record came out, it was getting a bit of traction. Uh, a couple stations in in Toronto were playing it. But it just never really panned out. We did a really great, actually, support tour for that record. Our first tour for that was with um, Jim Cuddy. He had just re- released his his first solo record, so we went out with uh, with him and his bandmates, and uh, that was a great tour. God, it was a lot of fun. And you know, then then it all sort of to me, for me, it sort of fades to black. I can't even remember what what else we did to try and make that record go. Well, I think we got our letter from from Warner saying. Uh, uh, yeah, we won't be picking up your first option. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, then I just think we felt like, uh, let's just let's just cool it for a while. Let's just live some some lives outside of the band for a while. Keith got married. Um, he, all the while he was taking classes. Um, even during like my tractor days, he would st- he'd have school bucks. He was picking up credits here and there. And um, I think he went to school in earnest. Uh, Toddy had just started working with Hawksley. And Sean, our drummer, was busy doing stuff in Toronto, so we just thought, no, we're spread out everywhere. Let's just let's just take a break from all this and reevaluate. So that's what we did. Um, if we can back up just a little bit, um, you mentioned trying searching for a single at Empire, 
uh, speeding some songs up. Is there a, a song in particular that comes to mind looking at the track list of an example of that, where you were searching for that for that pop single? Yeah, I think Saskatoon Pie was one that we did some work on. And um, Get Off My Back, I remember specifically speeding that up. Yeah, and just I think re-singing some of the stuff. Oh, but some of the most genius moments to me as a, as a listener, not as like a trying to get a single guy on the record, would be um, like Cold Rails. It's probably one of my all-time favorite songs that we ever released, and that was pure Michael Phillips. We didn't touch that. That was left as is. Same with Streetcar was left as is. It was kind of a bonus track. Yeah, I, you know, I think we were spinning our wheels. You know, it was, it was what it was. Um, we were where we were and um, we were trying our best to get the record company uh, excited about it. And that's pretty tough. It's a pretty tough thing to turn the corner because they're not music people at these companies. They are numbers people. And uh, not to say that there, not to say that there isn't some great music uh, brains and ears at some of the labels, but just pure belief in somebody's talent isn't enough for the VP or the president to keep writing checks for a, for a group that they saw had maybe run its course. You know, sad. You know, because uh, I always wanted to be. You know, my favorite bands in the world are bands that you know continue to put out records some of them i like some of them i hate you know like if i it's just mm -hmm. i wanted to keep making records and uh at that point the only way you could make records was if you had a deal because you know to go into a studio was just very cost prohibitive you just couldn't do it now you mentioned um ed robertson there and your your friendship and connection with him over the years and him working specifically on beats of hello to me um what did he bring to that track to elevate it to the point where everybody was happy with it. Everybody meaning, you know, friends, people, the record label, you know, who the people who wanted him in there to take it to the next level. What kind of things did he do to that song to get to that level? Well, I think in general, it was just an excitement um, and him making us feel like we were good. You know, we'd kind mm -hmm. of been beat, beaten down pretty good. Um, and it, it was just new life. Um, I think we upped the tempo um, a lot more electric guitar and just hammering the hook, you know, um, they had just got, I think this is right after uh, stunt had like gone platinum in the States or something oh, wow. like they, they were arena certified at this point. So, yeah, I think just, just the, just the excitement and his, his uh, undying belief in, in the song um, and determined to show, people that were maybe saying that, you know, there was no single, that there absolutely was a single and a great single. Um, so I, I'd say that, but nothing, you know, in particular, he may have, he may have come up with some, uh, some more vocal inflections that I can't remember exactly what he would have said, right, right, um, right. you know, to, uh, to get me to sing a part in a different way. I mean, I, he, I don't know. He's biased because he's always been a huge fan. So um, <laughs> God love him for it, boy. Did you guys ever try writing together? I mean, you said often mentioned, you know, bringing in co-writers and stuff like that, and him being a fan of the band, I mean, and being a friend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, uh, you know, um, it, it was a couple of years later, but when I uh, went down the, the road of uh, making my first solo record, me and him wrote uh, two, three songs on that record, yeah, together. And then again, for my very last studio record, um, wrote a couple songs together again. He's probably a guy I've written the most consecutive songs that have actually been recorded with. Oh, wow. You mentioned uh, 
Todd hooking up with Hoxley. Uh, I think Hoxley's like a legit musical genius. I'm curious, what was your first reaction when you heard his stuff? I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Like, uh, at, at first it was a little weird. It's like, okay. Cause I remember being over at Todd's and, and, uh, he, and Hoxley showed up and it's like, this is weird. You know, it's, I, feel, I almost felt like, I almost felt like, okay, hey, we're still married, but yet you're starting to date somebody outside <laughs> of, the, you know, and, uh, I didn't know what his, what his deal was. And I didn't really hear any of his music at that point until he released, uh, for, uh, what was his first word for him and all the girls? Is that what it is? Yeah. For him? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, man, I couldn't get enough of the record. It's just, I, I don't know. I thought it was brilliant. And, uh, and I still do to this day and I agree with you completely. He's a genius and a sweet guy, like just, just a great guy. We've, we've had a chance to hang out on occasion and he's an awesome guy. Did you guys do any uh, kind of work together in the studio? Oh man, so close! Like almost. Oh, okay. Um, my my uh, my last studio record, uh, he was scheduled to uh, to do with us. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Of. I heard something. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just scheduling didn't work out for some of my oh, bandmates. Yeah. yeah, totally. Because uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite, uh, not just like uh, songwriters, but one of my favorite producers as well. He's 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 brilliant. If we could dial back to the late 90s for just uh, a few more minutes, had you noticed any kind of changes within the music industry, say from your first record in the early 90s to your last record in the late 90s? I mean, throughout that period, um, from a fan perspective, you know, Canadian musicians had become superstars through various things like, you know, Edge Fests and Big Shiny Tunes and Chart Magazine. Was it... Um, Difficult for a band like yourself or you personally to kind of navigate that kind of celebrity? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I, I do know exactly. I do know exactly what you mean. Um, I mean to see um, our friends and our and our peers do as well as they kept doing. I mean, the hip that that's a completely other thing because they were just you know the greatest Canadian band of all time. Um, you know, to sort of the. It, to see them skyrocket wasn't a surprise or a shock. <laughs> um, and I was happy for them. Same with the, with the bare nakeds. Um, we were always really happy with, with all the successes that everybody were having. And, and I don't think we felt like we really fit in to the, uh, you know, to superstardom, to the mainstream that way. And I think that's why the third record was such a struggle for us. Cause we were trying to, I don't know, trying to be something that we weren't. Um, I think we were destined to make album, album records, you know, with some good songs and maybe, maybe no big, big hits. Um, not that I would, you know, obviously we tried, we wanted to get hits and that's why right, right. part of, you know, it's really a letdown for us. But, um, the nineties had seen, you know, there was grunge came along, um, which was not what we were about. Um, and that was, a, you know, rock was a big thing in the nineties. Nineties rock is massive. And we, we weren't that. Um, we were much closer aligned with, uh, like you mentioned, the Skydiggers and more roots-orientated um, uh, groups, more, closer to folk music. Um, and, 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 I mean, we always called ourselves like a folk pop band um, just because of so much acoustic guitar and vocals. But, um, yeah, towards the end of the 90s, uh, you know, when I, I'd moved back home to uh, Regina and technology was starting to change, file sharing was starting to kick in a little bit, you know, like, God, I don't know, when when, when was Napster 
sort of a thing. It was probably a little bit later, maybe 99 or, and uh, I don't know. It, I feel like we were sort of, we caught the tail end. Anybody in the nineties that was a recording artist were the last sort of last of a, of a, of a, of a breed of, of musician and songwriting and, and recording artists um, that, I don't know, everything started to slowly change and, and looking back on it now, it's completely different to today to when it was back then. I was just having this conversation with a buddy of mine this morning, Blake Berglund, a uh, country writer here in town. And we're just talking about, you know, the gatekeepers and how, and how, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious to people inside the industry, how it's all changed, but the, most people don't realize that, you know, in order to make a record pre 2000, you had to actually, you had to be pretty good <laughs> because <laughs> because you weren't getting into a studio unless you were a self-made millionaire and financing your own recordings. Um, and there were steps involved in getting into there. And we've kind of gone through them in this conversation where, you know, you start off as a, as a young band and you play hard and then you start gathering a following locally and then regionally, and then hopefully a little bit internationally. And then record companies take notice because they can take you to the next level and you get into the studio and you spend money making these, these records. And that's, that's why everybody's always talking about, oh, man, nothing's like the music from the 60s or 70s or 80s. It's like, well, yeah, because not everybody was making records, you know, only yeah. people that, that, that had some legitimate goods and something interesting to offer were, were allowed to make records. So that's all there was. And, you know, and the conversation I'm having today is like, there's no gatekeepers. I've got a laptop, a laptop sitting in front of me. In my studio here, I'm probably looking at maybe, well, the, the bottom end of it would be, you know, five six thousand dollars worth of equipment you know and that would be enough to make you know the billy eilish record which i'm a huge fan of by the way i'm not slamming her but anybody can make a record now and mm -hmm. it, there's no there is no gatekeepers and so it's just caused the static where it's just i don't know maybe i'm old but i just i feel like there's a lot of mediocrity out there but i just do really do feel like uh, it was a slow wind down for us towards uh, towards the end of the of the decade, uh, with Empire coming out in '98. You know, us taking a little break, and then we decided to to uh, make a live record because we'd always been known as a live band. So so why not? And uh, so we did. We made a live record. Not a lot of people know about it. Um, it's called Live, <laughs> L-I-V. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but sadly, the the dates that us and the label we signed on with a company in, in Toronto called Maple Music, who great, great bunch of folks. We released the record on September 11th, 2001 was our release date. Oh, wow. So that kind of, I don't know, to me, that kind of went, okay, this is, this means this is, this is, this, this bird is cooked. <laughs> and so at that point, is it um, now difficult? Like you had a bit of a crossroads saying, do I want to be a, start my own band? Do I want to go solo? Do I want to be, producing records? I mean, what, you know, what are the kind of internal conversations you're having with yourself knowing that the Waltons have kind of run its course in a way? Well, you know, we never really, we never consciously said to one another, Hey, let's call it quits. Let's have a big farewell okay. show. Um, Cause we'd always thought that was, I don't know. I always thought that was cheesy. Oh, this is our farewell tour. And then Jesus, you know, three years later, they're doing it again. We just thought, let's just leave this open. We don't need to announce anything at all. Who cares anyways? Nobody's going to give a shit whether we break up or not. So, uh, we never consciously put put an end to anything, um, but I guess what happened was uh, when I was living here, I was building 
this sort of warehouse condo place and uh, wanted it to be a recording studio. I wanted to continue making not only my own music, but to help other bands make theirs or get into producing and learn about engineering. Um, so I was doing that. And, uh, you know, it, it probably, it wasn't an actual remember the moment uh, that I heard it. Um, I don't know how I got it, but I got a, a demo of uh, Sarah Harmer's first solo record um, after Weeping Tile. Um, you were here. Mm-hmm. And when I listened to it, it just, it spoke to me in a way where it's like, okay, she's, she's by herself making this record with a producer um, and a great bunch of players. Like, I think I can do this. I sh- I sh- this is a whole new thing for me. And, and uh, not that I didn't like playing with the guys, but they were spread out everywhere. Keith was living in, I think at that point, Edmonton. Sean was in Toronto. Todd was in Toronto. So I thought I was going to make my own record. And I was hearing that album of hers, which inspired me to do it. So I just sat down and wrote a bunch of songs and um, uh, sent some demos to Ed. Ed said, great, come on out. We'll do a bit more writing. And so we did. And then, uh, yeah, booked some studio time and made my first solo record. Is there a song specifically that you think really showcases that first solo record? It's really indicative of the rest of the record? Um, Well, probably Satellite, the first track, which was a co-write between me and Ed that sets the tone well for for the record. I worked out that I've probably made a mistake For each thing I've done right Just keeping it even at times Seems to take every ounce of my might I might have found gold instead of dust Could have been someone to hold in trust I may seem hard in harder times Even when my colors are faded I stay in the lines I can't be the sun cause I'd burn As sure as I leave I will return The moon is too big and too bright I can't shine like
between me and uh, Ian LaFever, the uh, singer-songwriter and Starling. And uh, they were the backing band. And my old buddy, Maury Lafoy, who went to high school with here at Sheldon, uh, he was a bass player in Starling, and uh, he was a bass player on the record. And, yeah, so, it, you know, I had some cool guests. And Sarah actually came and sung on it. And uh, I'd known Sarah for quite a few years before. We'd done a lot of shows together. Weeping Talbate. Back even, even back to when we first moved to Toronto, she was in a band called the, uh, oh, geez, I can't remember the name of her first band, but I remember playing uh, small small shows with, with her. Huh. She's one of my favorite writers in the country. You mentioned producing there. You're getting into producing and engineering, and <clears throat> there's a band that's, um I always forever link with the Waltons and with yourself personally, is a, a band that really, to my knowledge, never really broke outside of Regina, which is a band called The Minnow. Yes, um, legend. Yes, I mean, <laughs> you and you produced their second record called Feel, and yeah. uh, you played a lot on the record itself. Yeah. Um, can you describe the Minnow to people who uh, have never heard of the Minnow? Well, uh, they'd be, you know, like you said, Regina guys, uh, eclectic group of of high school buddies um, that clicked in a way to to move folks. Uh, as a live band and as uh, Grant Roland is a songwriter who's still a good friend of mine to the day great songwriter and catchy stuff I don't know it, that a lot of that was happening uh, their success while while I was out of I was out of uh, town but I remember with, wasn't it Utopia Cafe or something wasn't weren't they on television didn't they have a TV I don't know it seemed to me like they had they had a theme song in a in a, in a TV show or something that probably helped them a lot but Great live band. And I mean, I knew Grant and uh, John, Johnny Bush for years and years and Clark and Mike Kerr's all of them. Like they were all Sheldon guys. And uh, they were in, they were in 
other bands as we were coming up as the Waltons, like early on, I don't know if you know, but they were in a band called the generics that, uh, yeah, us, the generics and another band, awesome fucking band called fall down, go boom. Uh, we, we were playing shows all over the, all over the place together, all over the city together. And, uh, it was all high school stuff. It was all high school days. And, um, and, uh, Maury LaFoy was in fall down, go boom with, uh, Graham Powell, who, uh, who tours now with Jan Arden, and uh, the generics was was Grant, and uh, Maury Lafoy's brother, Mike Lafoy, was the lead singer, and Mike Kirst played guitar, and Clark Pellet played drums, and uh, yeah, I mean it's funny I get the odd the odd message here and there. It's hey, when are the when are the generics and Fall Down Go Boom and the Waltons going to play again? And it's like <laughs> wow, it's such a great throwback to us just being you know. 18 19 it's like what what's what's better than that when the whole world's in front of you you have no idea what's going to happen in the world it's a lot more fun to look forward sometimes than it is to look back absolutely um you've mentioned you're still friends with grant i think he was before part of the willing for a while or still is he did he uh, he, he he played bass uh he, he was on he did some touring with, with me for a while but he, i guess he realized dentistry probably paid a bit better so he was, <laughs> a little steady <laughs> yeah they had some great songs on, I mean, their 90s record, Crocodile, with You Missed It All and LCS. And what right. do you think um, holds a band like that back from taking it to a national stage? Well, I mean, what years are we talking there? Was that, was that mid-90s, wasn't it? Like or, Yeah, like 97, probably. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I think for those guys, it was uh, the... I don't know, probably happens to a lot of acts. It's like you get pretty comfortable with success in your own backyard and it's enough for you. And, uh, you know, the, to, to be able to take it to a national audience sometimes means moving away. Um, it for sure then it did. I mean, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have did what we did had we, had we not moved to Toronto and, and, and transplanted ourselves. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think, uh, I think Roly had probably, I don't know if he if he had finished his dentistry at that point or I don't know the uncertainty of throwing yourself into the deep end of be, being in a touring rock band mm-hmm. requires abandoning all sense of stability you just you know it's got to be all you have and you've got to just you can't you can't just halfway do it I guess and I I don't think that any of them you know wanted to 100% do it nationally or, the, or they would have, I, I suppose. But I can't speak to uh, why, why it never happened for them because you're, you're right. They had some great songs. It's catchy as hell and, mm-hmm. and great, live, great live band. But, oh, for sure. you know, yeah. it's all, it's the perfect storm has to sort of happen uh, lots of times with, with, a, with a great band. But most of all, the desire and the willingness to chuck it all and, and throw yourself at that life I think is probably the big one um, and to go out and give it a try. And, and that meant even then that meant probably having to go to Toronto or at least Vancouver. And um, is there a song I could play in the podcast um, either that you produced on feel or from their crocodile record that uh, would really showcase them to uh, listeners? <laughs> uh, I got to look up feel and remember what, what, what we did on that. Uh, oh boy, this is going to be good. Yeah, whacked out always comes to mind. Uh, it it seems like he was singing. He's Hollywood's a good one. Yeah, it seems like he was singing a lot about teeth on that record. For <laughs> so for, for sure, he had gone through dentistry. Yeah, feels two thousand one. I think. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I did that at my studio. That would have at my warehouse place. That would have been one of the first or second records, probably third record that I did there. I did uh, Joel Fafard, Head Smashed In, um, and another young band called From the Ashes, um, their record. And the yeah, and the Minnow guys with Feel. Yeah, Holly, Hollywood's pretty good. Actually, what's the what's the? Uh, it might be the first track of that record. Track one is Feel. Track two, Sunshine. All or Not, that's a great one. Uh, like You Do, My Dear, also great. Whacked Out, Think About, I Am, Sign of the Times, What I'd Find in Hollywood. Wow, that's just a throwback. It's just, holy memories. I love the Minnow, man. Like, I, like They should be mandatory to play once a year in Regina if, if there's no pandemic going on. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you knew this, but uh when was uh it was one of the great cups here maybe it was i don't know if it was the year we won here at home anyways one year uh it's funny bare naked lady story and i, and I don't want to feel like i've just been name dropping bare naked left and right but they're a big part of our career here yeah, in the country living, yeah, exactly it's no way around it um, but uh they got asked to play a show at the agrodome or everest and uh they said I don't know if this is how it went exactly. It's, I think it is, though. It's, they said, I think they said they'd only do it if the Waltons opened for them. And we hadn't <laughs> played a show in years, like, at all. Um, or or it went, it's something to do with, oh, I can't remember how it came about. But it was, it, was, it, was, it was weird that it happened. But then the funny thing on top of it all is the Minnow were the first act on the bill. There was three of us. So they hadn't played in years and years and years. And all of a sudden, they're getting back together to play, and uh, then us, and then uh, and then bare naked ladies, um, and that was yeah, that was a great cup. I can't remember which great cup it was. Twenty thirteen, maybe was that a great cup? Yeah, yeah it was fairly I recently. Can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I remember the stress of those guys, Johnny Bush, <laughs> the, the stress of those guys getting out to walk into like you know, like in Regina, you don't get any bigger than playing the Agrodome for God's sakes. So yeah, that's for them the to do that. Exactly. That's it. You know, it doesn't get any bigger than that here. No. So uh, for them to do it. And I mean, it was weird for me and Keith because uh, Keith came in. Uh, he just he just was the only guy that came from Walton's and me and him. Uh, we used uh, uh, my our drummer from uh, Fog Dog and the Willing uh, and Gord, our bass player in Fog Dog and the Willing uh, played second guitar. So the four of us went up there. I think we rehearsed once and just it was like. I don't know. It was just like use the force and all these songs were still there. And we just, we had a blast. It was just like, man, how do we still remember these songs when we hadn't played since, I don't know when 2005 probably or something. Amazing. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think the minnow should play a show once a year and uh, I'd be, uh, I'd be there. Um, maybe after the COVID allows us to actually go out and see shows, maybe that's something yeah. that could, uh, that could happen. I know they'd all be into it because they love playing. And I, and I see all those guys still quite a bit. I'll never forget a gig. It was you guys in the minnow. You played the museum for some reason. There was like a oh. little hall or theater there. It was like late 90s. <laughs> Fucking amazing. Yeah. yeah, that was us actually trying out new material for the third record. We, we, uh, we, were, we were there. That's where we did a lot of our pre-production at the uh, museum. I knew, oh, really? uh, I knew somebody that worked there and we needed a, a place to set up and, and rehearse. So he said, well, the theater's huh. empty. So we, so we rehearsed there and uh, worked out songs and then uh, did that show. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I saw the ticket stub locked in my Minnow Crocodile CD, like under the little wow. inlay. 
Anyhow, is there a uh, minnow song you recommend? Or since it's a Jason Plum podcast episode, should I just pick one of the ones that you sing uh, backups on? Sure. Yeah. No. You. 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 You're the. You're the big minnow fan. So you. Uh, I like that whole record. Uh, I love working with those guys. I mean, Grant's Grant's a great bass player. He really is. Like a really great bass player. Some dreams to think about now Which way If one wanted out Skin tight Get a little closer Sweet, just hold on Real tight Bite on your bottom lip Now smile big You're the anchor for my ship So side up Take one last good look at just how nice, just how nice it is. I left the whole light on. There ain't much really wrong. It's all in my It's all, it's all or none. It's all, it's all or none. Water runs, the soul gets nice and clean, and normal makes the grass turn nice and green. So button down, yeah, the coals are getting hot just.
So um, we'll talk some more more current affairs here as we wind this down. Um, now, sure. You haven't released a, a record in yourself in about five years. I think EP Anonymous, or it was 2015, yeah. I think, if I got their ears right. So yeah. which means you've been focusing a lot on producing and, and recording other bands. What was it that you're able to take to these bands now throughout your decades as a performer, writer, and working with legendary producers like a John Switzer or a Michael Phillip or an Ed Robertson, for example? How is it now to uh, be behind the board as opposed to in front of it? Uh, you know, I, I think I, well, I borrow most heavily from Michael Phillip because he's the guy I had most experience with as far as, you know, using psychology in the studio mm-hmm. to deal with artists and um you know, I, I come at it as a fan of songs, first and foremost. Um, to me, the record begins and ends with what songs are on it. I don't care how they're recorded or, you know, what kind of instrumentation there is. The song, a song is a good song. It could be on a piano or a guitar or just a voice and it's going to work out. So, I, I don't know, I guess as a songwriter, that's probably what I take first and foremost into projects that I'm lucky enough to work on. Um, some artists I've worked with don't need anything done with their songs whatsoever. They're just perfect, uh, at least to me. And uh, some other artists have amazing ideas in the form of songs that need a bit of arranging um, or a key change or a tempo change or whatever it does to get the song to, to elevate to that level. But I, I don't know. I've been really lucky. I've worked with some pretty great acts um, and, and, you know, produced quite a few records between my warehouse studio and then my Cameron Street garage studio and then moving from there into the CBC. Um, you know, some great artists came through the doors and I was lucky, lucky to be able to work with them and, uh, you know, don't have, don't have, a, I have nothing but warm memories of all of them. Um, and, you know, a lot of hard work sometimes and never really, you know, I would quote a price and, uh, the end of the day it was always below minimum wage i'm sure after all the hours put in but i was you know i was never doing it to to get rich for sure um it's more just i don't know felt like making records was was kind of my calling and uh and if i couldn't be the guy making them then next best thing is helping other artists make records i still have a hard time staying off of them like if they need a backup vocal part i'm always the first guy to say hey i could sing that um <laughs> so i get i get my i get my my recording my own voice uh terror and thrill at the same time ep anonymous was five years ago which is your last uh, recorded material as a performer um is there anything down the pipe that fans can expect well you know it's tough to say i've been thinking about well i've spent this entire year writing probably more than i ever have um i'm looking down at my pro tool session right now and there's about 15 hours of just me rambling into the microphone aimlessly um, so there's a lot of ideas that I need to kind of wrangle. Um, I don't know if they'll be for me or if they'll be for a release. I don't know. I can't help but write sometimes. And this has been an interesting year. So it's been lots to, lots to ponder. Yeah. Five years ago. Yeah. EPI like, that, those were kind of, again, those were kind of demos. Like I played a lot of that stuff myself and, uh, put it out as an obligation because I think I had a, some Rolco money that I had to spend on a record. And so I thought, well, I'm going to put something out. There's some really interesting songs on there that um, is kind of a departure, I think, in my in my to my ears. Something like I don't know how to to actually say is it eight thousand miles or eight miles? Oh yeah, uh, one times ten bracket eight 
bracket miles. I'm not sure the pronunciation, but yeah, I don't know what I was on about the whole mathematics thing, but uh, that's uh, scientific notation for um, 100 million. Yeah, 100 million, million, there you miles. Go. 100 million miles. Yeah. And it's like, it's weird yeah. to me. It kind of almost rings like an R&B track or something. In the time that it can take better never than late To lay down how it feels to pretend It was at least as good as it can get from anyone You're not anyone in the end Remember when we first met How could I ever forget I fell head over here so true Was I out of my mind Not to mind much of anything As much as I minded Well, that's really nice of you to say. Um, 
thinking back to making that record. That was the first record I did when I moved into the CBC studio and sort of took it over mm-hmm. and was retrofitting the stuff. And I thought, well, what a, no, no better time. Actually, that's how I ended up in the CBC. I was looking for a place to make my next solo record and just weird, weird thing happened and I ended up there. But um, that's nice of you to say. And I mean, I, I don't know. The, the older I get, the more I'm feeling there's this R&B side of me um, that I've never been able to uh, express. Um, live, I feel like I can do it. Um, and, you know, being the, the, the party bands that I'm in with, uh, with my best friends in the world and the Fog Dog Band and uh, the country band El Guitaro, some of the material we pick, I, I'm allowed to, uh, well, not allowed, I'm required to, to, you know, sing with some soul and feel. Um, not that I, not to say that I, not to say that I ever did with, with Walton's, but I don't know, Walton's was, was pretty straight, you know, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about it now. And, uh, and a lot of the country music I, I love and listen to is, is kind of the same way, but I don't know. I just feel like, uh, I've got, I've got some, there's some fire burning inside me that needs to get out once in a while. And, um, thinking of the stuff, the styles that I'm writing more lately, is probably even more that way. Um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, and it is growth, and I appreciate you seeing that because, um, you know, I, I alluded to it earlier. If, if if we had just decided to make Like My Tractor again uh, as our second record, uh, it may have ensured a path where we would have been stuck making <laughs> making the same record over <laughs> and over again because there's people that like that music, and uh, who, who knows? Um but uh, yeah, I, I've always been afraid of, of repeating myself, and this probably held held me back a little bit because there's only so many notes. But uh, I'm 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 over it now, where I'm not afraid to rip myself off or anybody else. <laughs> Shit, you know, there's a lot of great music. I, like one of my favorite writers is Ryan Adams, and and that guy just you know he he puts out too much music, and some of it isn't very good. <laughs> but the stuff that is good is holy. Jesus, this is one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. And uh, he's not afraid of ripping himself off. Um, you know, he's a student precious. So I, I think I'm getting better at that the older I get. It's like, you know, I don't give two shits. So that's, you know, that's the way I am. Um, before we get into the, uh, the last question, is there any final thoughts looking back on the 90s and your experience within them in Canada that you'd care to share that we haven't uh, touched on yet? Uh, no, we were lucky. We were lucky. Uh, to to get to hang out and be associated with some of uh, some of our, our our heroes and people that became uh, sort of lifelong friends and just we were really lucky in a in a point in time to uh, just you know just summed up like the the Kumbaya festival the first one that they did at the forum um, I wish I could find a tape of us um, playing that day because the way they paired up artists and stuff so Keith got to play. With uh, with Andrew Cash and had Gord Downey as lead singer and I mean I don't know these are these are great memories and uh, uh, I, I I look back on the 90s as uh, as a good time I I don't know I must have I must have partied a lot because I don't remember in detail lots of it it seemed like a blur it went <laughs> by pretty quick but uh, we were young we were in our 20s so so final question. Um... I have a playlist, a companion playlist to the podcast on Apple and Spotify of all 90s, quote-unquote, can rock. So I'm asking all the guests to uh, contribute two singles and one deep cut from their material from the 90s. So how would you like the Waltons to be represented on the playlist? Uh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. I'd have to, It'd be 
it's weird. I, in some weird way, I've been running from like my tractor songs forever. Even now, like when I play a song, it's like, do I really have to play in the meantime? But people <laughs> want to hear it, you know? And uh, so it would have to be something off of that record, probably, you know, either in the meantime or Naked Rain. Um, and uh, I don't know, Deep Cut, Cold Rails off, off Cox Crow would probably be one of my favorites oh sorry that's on uh it's on empire hotel uh yeah cold rails that's a deep cut you need another one then i need one more single so i'll pick naked rain if you're if you're gonna leave it up to me that's my favorite off of tractor and then we got the deep cut we got one single the deep cut and we need one more single oh sure end of the world then perfect well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with your experience in the 90s today man it's been fantastic well, thanks a lot for having me. I've enjoyed the, the stroll down memory lane and uh, uh, hopefully I got some of my dates and facts straight. Um, and uh, yeah, it's fun to revisit those times because um, it seems surreal to me now, but I appreciate you having the interest. Good luck with the show. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. Please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care. Time